The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. So today's sermon I titled Living Liberty in Balance. That's the theme, really, of chapter 8, 9, and 10. Paul's addressing this church that he planted and pastored for a year and a half. Now he's been away, and they had some trouble in the area of theology and also practice and purity and in chapter 8, 9, and 10, he's trying to solve a problem with divine truth as their pastor and also as an apostle. And the problem was you get a mixture of people, which you have in any Christian congregation, uh, different sensibilities and also different maturity levels, as we would have in this church. And the problem specifically that he's addressing in 8, 9, and 10 is he had some Christians there in Corinth who thought they were spiritually mature. They understood the Bible. They were confident in their faith. Uh, they were impervious to temptation and sin, so they thought in certain areas, and they had privileges and freedoms that they've been given in Jesus Christ, and they wanted to exercise those Christian liberties and exercise their freedom in gray areas and even in areas that weren't gray, thinking that they could, as they live in the world, they could uh, rub shoulders with believers and even in some uh, activities that unbelievers engage in. And while they did that, they were confident that they wouldn't get tainted or soiled or tempted or sin or fall, but they could interface with unbelievers at a very close range and level and even kind of be on the periphery of some of the unbelievers' questionable activities and not be influenced by that. And they called themselves, referred to themselves as the wise, spiritual, strong Christians. And they lived in a community where at their church in Corinth, there were other Christians surrounding them and in their community of faith who weren't as strong as them in their confidence or their theology or their conscience or maybe even some of their beliefs. These were the weaker Christians in certain areas. Um, They were weaker in that they uh, could be maybe tempted to sin easier in certain areas or maybe they were weaker in that they didn't understand their freedoms and liberties in Christ to the full degree they should according to scripture so sometimes they would identify something as a sin when in fact it actually was not a sin for example watching television is a sin some christians through the years have actually said that and believe that well actually that's not true television is an inanimate inanimate object um it's neutral just a box that people made and it can be used for sin or not for sin and so uh, a weak christian could say something like that that a television is watching television is sinful so uh, that's kind of the narrow myopic view of the Christian they need more information they need some balance Uh, they could be a wee bit legalistic and then on the other end were these strong Christians who are kind of actually a wee bit arrogant and proud saying no a television is not sinful everybody knows it's just a box of inanimate objects put together and it's neutral and you have freedom in Jesus Christ who watched the television without being tempted to sin what are you thinking you ignorant Uh, legalistic Christian and so uh, that was actually going on not with regard to televisions but 2,000 years ago it was things in their community and how they had social interaction in the Corinthian culture Uh, as they went out and about in town uh, on the street corners or even as they engaged with unbelieving family members and the activities that they engaged in so uh, a common day parable common day parallel might be that uh, for Thanksgiving we're going to go to uh, our family's house and they're all unbelievers and actually, they are idol worshipers, and they have idols in their house, actually, and they'll probably uh, do homage to a couple of those idols while we are there. And so the strong Christians might say, oh, yeah, I can go there and hang out with my unbelieving family, and I don't have a problem. And I know that their idols don't mean anything. They're just made out of trees and wood, and uh, it's not a real God. And I'm, I know Jesus Christ personally. I'm secure in my faith. So going to worship with them and interact with them won't be a problem. Whereas the weaker Christian might say, I'm not going in that house that's got idols i might get tainted or poisoned or be considered unclean so there's the dilemma so paul's going to wrap up this uh, dilemma in his argument and we're going to look at verses 14 through 33 which can't be separated because it's really one continual argument that paul has as he wraps things up from 14 to 33 and paul big picture paul's just trying to remind them once again you do have liberties and freedoms in jesus christ as a christian But there are parameters to how you live out those liberties and freedoms in Christ. And he's kind of been repeating what those parameters are. 
And he's going to do it one more time. He's going to close by reiterating three guiding principles of how all Christians should live their liberties and live their life in, in a fallen world in a way that pleases Jesus Christ. So he's going to give three points of emphasis or three parameters or three guidelines, three principles of living to consider as you're living out your life as a Christian, especially in the area of these areas of liberty or choices that you need to make as you interact with the unbelieving world and live in an unbelieving fallen culture. And there's a lot of application for us here. So, And again, in 14 through 33 in chapter 10, Paul is primarily addressing the strong Christians, those who pride themselves on exercising their liberties in Christ. They pride themselves on being able to go to the local bar and boast that, no, I can go to the bar and watch the football game and be around all that alcohol and all the sinful people, and I won't get drunk. And I can come away pristine, untouched. So don't judge me for going to the bar. That'd be the strong Christian, where the weak Christian might say, hey, didn't I see you going to a bar the other day? That's where people go and drink alcohol and carouse and get drunk. And what, what in the world are you doing there, you sinner? That would be the weak Christian. So that's an analogy for the day. And Paul's addressing primarily the strong Christian here. Strong Christian in the Corinthian church, you need to take the lead. You need to take the lead in your church in living out the following principles. Live your life in light of your liberties in a fallen world in light of three main considerations. Number one, live for personal sanctification. And then uh, number two, as you're li- a strong Christian, as you're living out your liberties, you're proud of your freedoms in Jesus. As you live in an unfallen world or in a fallen world, then number two, you need to live for others' edification. So live for your own personal sanctification. But also consider how you're affecting others around you, so you need to live for others' edification. And then also, strong Christian, as you live in this fallen world, exercising your freedoms in Christ, another guideline, uh, and this is kind of the culmination or the, the apex, number three, is live for God's exaltation. Live for God's glory. So three simple principles, but incredibly important, and these should guide all of our lives every day. So we need to continually be asking ourselves these questions in areas of freedom, in areas of gray areas. uh, Really, no matter what we're doing, we can remind ourselves, is what I'm doing and participating in leading towards my personal sanctification and holiness in my Christian life, or is it undermining it? Also, is what I'm doing and participating in, how is it affecting other believers? Is it edifying them and building them up or tearing them down and causing them to stumble? And I'm being, or am I being short-sighted and self-centered and not really putting the concerns of others around me above my own interests, as Paul said also in Philippians 2. And also, everything I do should be exalting Jesus Christ and God the Father, the Holy Trinity. That's the most important. I live for Him, not for me. It's not about, the Christian life is not about self-centered living. It's all other-oriented, 100%. It's considering others around you but the other the greatest other is the trinity how we live and do everything for him to please him the exaltation of god so let's go ahead and and break these down these three main points Uh, first we'll look at verses 14 through 22 that as we live out our personal life priority number one needs to be whatever we do we need to consider our own personal sanctification sanctification Uh, Look at chapter 10, verse 14. Therefore, my beloved fellow believers, Paul gives a command in the argument. He's been going on since chapter 8. Flee from idolatry. He began this discussion by way of reminder in chapter 8, verse 1. Now, a new topic, chapter 8, verse 1. Now, concerning things sacrificed to idols. Let me talk about idols and meat sacrificed to idols because it's creating a problem in this congregation. And Christians have different views about the meat sacrificed to idols. And as a matter of fact, uh, how we interact with idolatrous people in our culture and in our family. We need to talk about that, and he does for the next three chapters. And one of his answers, uh, wrapping it up very simply, is, okay, now that I've talked for two and a half chapters about meat sacrificed to idols, priority, verse 14, flee from idolatry. Run away from idolatry. 
have nothing to do with idolatry. Why is Paul saying that? Well, because the strong Christians were arguing that they could go, in light of their freedom in Christ, to go out on the street corner to one of the local pagan temples and hang out in the pagan temple where they have meals and dinners and food to eat that's yummy probably, but they're eating meat that has been sacrificed to some false pagan god like Artemis and other false gods that were there in Corinth. And along with those pagan celebrations, there was questionable activity. There was a religious component to it. They, these pagans in their temples, they would eat a meal because they thought they were having communion with their false gods. So if you participated in the meal, you were also participating in the worship of a false god. And many times there was immorality that went on in these activities and meals as well. And so Paul is concluding that, wow, strong Christian, you're saying that you can go into one of these pagan temples on their religious days of worship, sit down at the table and eat with them, when in fact the meal that they are having is celebrating worship of a false god and you're participating in that? And not only that, you're supporting or watching or endorsing their immoral behavior that goes along with their false religion and worship that goes with that? No, you can't do that. That undermines your own personal holiness and sanctification. Do not do that. And that's why he starts this section out by saying, uh, let, me, let me be clear, yes, there are freedoms. Yes, an idol is not a piece of wood shaped into a god. It actually is nothing. It's just a piece of wood. It's a false idol. He said that in chapter 8. It is nothing. But people, when they worship that thing, there is something involved. They're worshiping a false god that you can't see, and that false god is actually a demon. And when they're doing that in the temple and you're participating, you're actually participating in demon worship. You're supporting demon worship. Do not do that. Flee that. Leave that place. Don't be a part of it. Leave those temples. That's his point there. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Yeah, you, you can eat the meat that's sacrificed to an idol if, under certain conditions. But if you affiliate in those religious services, you are actually participating in demonic worship, which is idolatry, which makes the true God angry because he is a jealous God. That's why we have the Ten Commandments, the first four dealing with what God requires. Have no other gods before me and don't worship idols or icons. It, it warranted the death penalty in the Old Testament because that's what God thinks of it. God is a jealous God. God is That's holy jealousy. It's not sinful jealousy. It's legitimate jealousy. He's the only creator. He is the only judge. We are he is worthy of our worship in Him alone. And that's what He requires of His people. And so you must flee this idolatrous uh, option that you strong Christians have been participating in, going into these feasts and festivals, thinking you're strong and you're not going to be tempted. Um, but actually you're subjecting yourself to temptation like the Israelites that I already talked about in the earlier chapter 10 where they got into sexual immorality from trying to put their foot in the water and see how deep they can go or how close to the edge they can go before they actually fall into sin. You're setting yourself up for devastation. Flee from idolatry. Run away from it. Have nothing to do with it. So that's his main exhortation here uh, in verses 14 through 22. That is the imperative. That is the command. And then he says, verse 15, I speak as to wise men. Here's a problem with these strong Christians and many of the uh, Corinthian Christians. One of their problems is they were arrogant. He already said that in chapter 4. You are arrogant. Uh, you think you know everything. Um, you think you're all that in terms of your head knowledge regarding theology. You're blinded by your own pride. You think you're so smart. So he's, that is a problem that Paul has to deal with in the entire book of Corinthians. And so he's kind of speaking maybe tongue-in-cheek here. Now, you guys boast of being wise. Now, if you really are wise, actually it's a different word for wisdom here. Uh, it means common sense. I mean, if you really have common sense and you really are wise, then you're going to listen to what I'm saying here, Okay. I'm saying flee from idolatry. And if you're wise, you're going to do that. So Paul's actually kind of giving them the benefit of the doubt. I'm, prove yourself to be wise like you've been bragging that you are. And I'll give you the benefit of the doubt and let you see if you do this. So judge what I say. Consider what I'm telling you as an apostle, uh, as a man of God, as your pastor. Please. This is serious. Verse 16, he says, it's not uh, the cup of blessing. So now what he's talking, what he's going to, he's going to give three illustrations to these strong Christians. You need to realize what you're doing. When you go into a pagan temple and sit down and have a meal with those who are worshiping a false god, 
you are associating yourself, maybe even unwittingly, with demon worship. Did you know that? And they're like, whoa, didn't know that. Well, let me give you three illustrations from three, uh, from three different kinds of meals. The meal of the Lord's Supper where Christians come together and we have the bread and we have the cup and we come as a body and we eat it together. And when we do that, when we have the Lord's table or when we have communion or uh, the Lord's Supper, what we are doing as Christians is we are actually having koinonia, which means fellowship with the living Lord Jesus Christ when we do that. It's an act of worship. We are literally communing on a divine level, amazingly supernaturally, with Jesus Christ when we have communion. And the word is koinonia. That means intimate, deep fellowship with Jesus who is God. When we have a meal of the Lord's Supper, we are interacting with a God, and it is the true God. And at the same time, not only are we doing something Vertically with Almighty God, we're also doing something horizontally when we have communion together. We are showing solidarity with every other brother and sister in Christ. We are all one in that meal. That's what happens at a religious service or a religious meal, like the Lord's Supper. You're actually worshiping that God, and you're showing solidarity and have unity with everybody that is participating. His second illustration that he's going to talk about is, well, this was also true in the Old Testament. When... The Old Testament priest under the Mosaic law would take a sacrifice, an animal, cut up a portion of the animal. Some of that meat they'd give back to the sacrificer. They would use some of that meat to eat it, like at the Passover meal. You'd kill a lamb. You would actually eat some of the meat as participants. Some of the meat you'd give to the priest, and he would offer and sacrifice to God. And some of the meat the priest would eat. And so it's the same thing at a Passover meal or a sacrificial meal in the Old Testament, similar to what we do at the Lord's Supper. We have a meal together, and when we have a meal together, we are worshiping God together, and we have solidarity together as a body because we're all participating in the meal. And so he uses those two illustrations to remind the Corinthians, when you go into a pagan temple and you have a meal with unbelievers in the pagan temple, and it's an act of how they worship their God, and you actually participate in that you are worshiping the false god and you're condoning and endorsing demon worship don't do that it undermines your personal sanctification it also makes god angry because it's a sin and he is a jealous god so that's what uh 16 and following is about these illustrations he says is not the cup of blessing that's communion which we bless uh, a sharing in the blood of Christ is not the bread which we break, a sharing in the body of Christ. We have uh, unity as brothers and sisters. Verse 17, since there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation Israel, Old Testament. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is nothing? No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. So flee idolatry. Don't go into those temples anymore and participate in those pagan services. A modern day parallel. By the way, when we read this command, uh, flee from idolatry. That, what was the message about the Pastor Cliff preached today? Oh, it was uh, flee from idolatry. Oh, that's interesting. We don't have idolatry today. Did you know that? Some Christians would say we don't have idolatry. There's actually two extreme views among Christians that are popular. One is we don't really have idolatry today the way the Corinthians did. And then there's another view that's extreme. And I'm thinking, no, we got idolatry. We do. It just manifests itself in different ways. So here's just some common ways that we have idolatry. What is idolatry? Consistently in the Bible, idolatry is when you worship a man-made thing, whether it's a stone, a rock, a tree, something carved, a visible manifestation of some creature, and you worship it or you pray to it or you give homage and reference to it you kiss it that's what worship means by the way if you get this or if you venerate it oh that's a big word what does that mean if you look in the, the dictionary venerate means to worship some people try to make a distinction no we don't worship that we venerate it uh, that's a false dichotomy so, and, so idolatry is when you do any of these things to a man-made object, to an icon, an image, 
a picture, a statue, and you worship that thing and give it glory as opposed to giving glory to the true God alone who is invisible, who is spirit, who is not an image. So when we worship God, we worship God in spirit, not through an image, not through a statue, not through a crucifix, not through any kind of human mediation made from man's hands. That is idolatry. The only image of God in tangible form was the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ in his resurrection, in his physical body, and then in his resurrection body. That's it. So to worship anything else other than God is idolatry, and to worship anything else in physical form, even the true God, is idolatry. But the emphasis on idol is an actual tangible physical thing. So here in this culture, here in 2014, in the Bay Area, there's idolatry all over the place. There, um, there's Hinduism that worships zillions or thousands and thousands of gods that's prominent in our area. And if you partake in worshiping those gods, that is idolatrous. That is wrong. So this is practical for us. Flee from the idolatry, the worship of the Hindu gods. They're false gods. Don't do that. Where else is idolatry prominent in our culture? Well, Buddhism is prominent more and more in our culture. Statues, another one related to that is ancestor worship. I hear it all the time in this culture. To worship dead ancestors is idolatry. It was condemned in Scripture. It required the death penalty. And here Paul says, have nothing to do with it. It's worship God and God alone. Where else do we have idol worship? I grew up as an idol worshiper for 19 years uh, in the Roman Catholic Church. I, I did. I went to 12 years of Catholic school. I was taught very young to pray to statues. I, we had statues all over my house. I had statues all over in my bedroom that my parents put there. I had pictures and images of saints and of Jesus and statues of Mary and Joseph and St. Anthony. And they were in every room in the house. And we'd sometimes even put them in the car to protect us. And we pray to St. Uh, Christopher to keep us safe. And when I lose something, we pray to St. Anthony, supposedly, to help us find something. Uh, on the May 1st uh, was May Day, one of the biggest holidays of the year that I grew up with for 19 years. On May Day, you go to, to Mass, and at the end, the culmination, you get in line, and you go all the way up to the line, and there's a huge, massive statue of Mary that the priests and the altar boys are holding, and I used to hold that uh, statue as an altar boy myself. And each person comes up, and they bend over, and they genuflect, and they kiss the feet of the statue of Mary to get absolved and forgiven of some sin, and also to give her veneration. That's worship. That is idolatry. I grew up with it. And Roman Catholicism is one of the largest religions in the world. So you can't say that we don't have idolatry today. It's everywhere. Or even in, not Roman Catholicism, Greek Orthodoxy is another common popular religion that's a deviation from biblical Christianity. But uh, I know a couple of Greek Orthodox priests. I knew one in Los Altos when I was there. And one of my friends is a Greek Orthodox priest. And he, is, he talks about worshiping icons. They're proud of their icons. They're supposed to pray their icons. And uh, it's even the patrons are encouraged to kiss the door of the church as you go in to show reverence for the image that's on the door. That is idolatry. And it's uh, filtered down into a form of Christianity. But Paul says, no, have nothing to do with it. Flee idolatry. Flee idolatry. And since I've been at this church, I've had practical questions that people have asked me for counsel, and I think this passage plays into it and has clarified it in my mind of the counsel I might give. Here's an example. that I've, This has happened several times. Uh, pastor, I have neighbor friends that are Mormons, and we're building a good relationship, and our kids play together. And This has happened several times, actually, and uh, we get along great, and we want to continue our relationship and friendship with uh, this family, And but they've invited us to a Mormon ceremony, and we're not kind of sure what it is. It's, it's some kind of dedication or baptism or whatever, and at their church and et cetera. Do you think I should go? And I always ask, well, do you think you should go? Usually they say, well, I, I kind of have an unclear conscience about it. <laughs> you shouldn't go. Don't ever sin against your conscience. Don't ever violate your conscience as a Christian. That's step number one. Or sometimes they might say, well, I'm not sure. I mean, I want to show love to them. Yeah, you show love to them. And, you know, Jesus, he, he hung out and ate with unbelievers. And let me remind you that we pointed out that, yeah, Jesus hung out and ate with sinners. But we pointed out from Luke and from Scripture that Jesus always dictated the conditions by which he would eat with unbelievers, didn't he? He, he dictated the conditions and the behavior. He never compromised. He went to Levi's house, which was a bunch of sinners, but they weren't doing Levi's agenda the carousing and everything. They were doing Jesus' agenda. 
So you have to consider that as well. So you can't say, well, out of love, I want to just go and be with the unbelievers and do whatever they want to do on their turf all the time. That, no, that's not biblical. There are other ways to show them love. And so this plays into it. And, and Paul's drawing dis- very fine distinctions because on the one hand, I, people have accused Paul of being of contradicting himself in these 8 through, eight through 10, I've, in the commentaries that I have. Because on the one hand, Paul says that uh, an idol isn't anything. And then here he's saying, uh, wow, if you worship an idol, you're worshiping demons. And then in chapter 8 he says, um, that meat you know, that was sacrificed to an idol, that's eh, nothing. And then here he's going to say in chapter 10, you know what, if you find out that meat is sacrificed to an idol, you probably shouldn't eat it. But it's context, context, context. And Paul is being very specific about the context under which you should do one thing and refrain from the same thing at another time. It has to do with context. And so uh, with someone who's asking, should I go to my friends, and they're Mormons, and they're going to do a baby dedication or a baptism for the family in their church. It's it's a worshipful act on the part of the Mormon church. That's a different religion than what we believe in. We would say it's an unbiblical religion. We don't want to go and participate. And by virtue of our participation and attendance there, we would be tacitly showing support or even overtly showing support by going there and doing that on this religious occasion. And that's what Paul's saying. Don't do that. Don't be a part of the religious aspects of the worship of another God. If you want to interact with love and serve other people in different religions, do it in different contexts. And Paul says, for example, don't go to their temple or where they have their worship services, but you can go to their home if they invite you for dinner. So that's where he makes that distinction. So it's the context. An unbeliever has invited you to something. What is it? What is it and what are they doing? If it has to do with the worship of a false god, no, don't go there. If it has to do just in their house with dinner and that's all you know the agenda is, and you can go and be salt and light and be uh, uh, a testimony, go for it. Enjoy the dinner. Ask for dessert. But anyway, um, Paul makes that distinction in this passage. We're going to see that. So hopefully that's helpful. You've got to think it through. What is the occasion? What is the context? Am I going to be any way endorsing this false religious view and encouraging this person that I love and I'm sharing the gospel with and I want them to be saved? Am I going to be encouraging it in them, them in their false view of their false religion? Don't do that. Or the same thing with, I've had people ask me, uh, there's a Catholic baptism, my family's invited me, should I go? Well, according to this passage, no. Paul says, flee idolatry, get away from idolatry. And religious ceremonies dedicated to it and upholding it. That doesn't, so that don't go to the Catholic church where they're doing that. Leave and flee. If you want to be friends and a witness to your Catholic family, do it in other contexts, whether it's Thanksgiving dinner, going to the party. I mean, there's a zillion ways you can do it to get away from this compromise of your convictions and your true religion. So it comes down to the individual context. And Paul is very helpful here as he makes that very clear distinction. By the way, uh, when I said live for personal sanctification, the word from sanctification literally comes from the word which means to separate. Separate yourself. So let me ask you, how is your doctrine of separation going in your personal Christian life? That's a great question. What is your doctrine of separation as a Christian? Do you have a doctrine of separation? Have you ever even heard that before? What does that mean? Is that in the Bible? Absolutely. It is right here. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul's going to talk about it again. And he says, be separate from them. Separate yourself from unbelievers in certain contexts. He said it in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, if you forgot. Separate them from your midst, the unholy professing Christian who's not a Christian and they're immoral. So the doctrine of separation needs to be incorporated in every Christian's life. What is your view of your doctrine of separation? It's a great question. Separation, that's the word, the root word for holiness. Live holy. Be separate. A simple definition is to separate yourself from the sinful things in the world. Living solely for Jesus. Pleasing him through holy living. So separating yourself from sinful things and practices in the world that will undermine your pure walk with Jesus. That's what separation is. Well, how far should I separate? What, to what degree should I separate? Because if you're a fundamentalist and proud of that term, then you, you could believe in second or third degree separation. What's that? Well, I don't want to get into it. What do I believe? I believe in at least first degree separation. If there's something overtly sinful, I want to separate myself from it. And there are other Christians who believe in third-degree separation. That they don't associate with this person because this Christian associated with that 
compromised Christian, and that compromised Christian associated with a total heretic, and that total heretic compromises and uh, schmoozes with somebody who's not even saved. And so they want to separate themselves to the nth degree so that there's nothing in their lineage that would connect them with an association of an apparent compromiser or sinner. And that, that leads to problems. That would be hyper-fundamentalism. But anyway, separation is a legitimate biblical doctrine. So separate yourself as you think about where this liberty is going to take you. Is it going to encourage you in holiness or is it going to lead you towards sin? And one of the most practical places we can apply that in our life today is maybe if you watch television or movies. What are you watching? Is it compromising your holiness and God's character? Making a mockery of it? Is designed for holy marriage? I mean, the smut that's on television, that's unbelievable. And also in the movie theater. So that's a good place for us to Think through, be discerning, and practice your own uh, doctrine of separation in your life in a way that pleases Jesus. So, in considering my freedoms, I need to consider my own personal sanctification and how it affects my holiness as I live for Jesus. Number two, let's go on to verses 23 to 30. Things I need to consider in acting out my liberties is live for others' edification. Now, somebody, like some of these Corinthians, who are all about parading their liberties. I can do this, and I can do that, and I can do this because I'm free in Jesus. And they just uh, blow the horn about all of their liberties and the things they can do out in the world. I can go here, and I can go to a bar, and I can go here, and I can do yoga, and I can do that, and I can do this. And I have freedom in Jesus. And Paul's like, whoa, you know, you're a little arrogant. Take heed lest you fall. He said that in verse 12. We've got to rein in your thoughts about your... It's not about you. It's not about you. It's about how your behavior affects other people first, other Christians, and how your behavior affects your own personal holiness and how it affects God. So he wants them to focus now on think about others before you think about yourself. This is basic to Jesus' ethic of being a Christian. Love God, love your neighbor. Put others above yourself. And that's how you conduct yourself in the church and in the world. So look at verse 23. Live for others' edification. Edification means to build up. To build others up as opposed to tear them down. How can you build other Christians up? Well, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. So the Corinthians, uh, one of their arguments was all things are lawful, all things are lawful, all things are permissible. I have freedoms. I have. Free-. So Paul's kind of echoing that sarcastically. He did it earlier in Corinthians. But he modifies that truth that they have exaggerated. Well, all things that are um, not sinful are lawful. And even when that's the case, not all things are profitable. Not every freedom you exercise is going to be good for another Christian who's around you. As a matter of fact, you might be exercising a freedom that's allowable and it might cause another Christian to stumble. That's not good. So again, it's context. All things are lawful, yes, but not all things are profitable. Well, all things are lawful. And then Paul says, but not all things edify Don't just live for yourself. Consider others around you with every decision and choice you make. You are conscious of others around you as you live your life. Maybe you like a half a glass of wine at the dinner table when you're out at some Italian restaurant or whatever it is, and you're a Christian. Then you've got a clear conscience about drinking, drinking a half a glass of wine as long as you don't get intoxicated or whatever. And if you're enjoying that liberty, the first thing that should cross your mind is, am I going to cause another believer to stumble by doing this as I exercise my liberty? Paul made it clear. If somebody, so you're conscious of others around you. You're cognizant of how your behavior affects other people. So that's the overriding principle here for Paul. Not everything edifies. It's not just about enjoying your liberties. Verse 24, here's the principle for us as Christians. Let no one seek his own good. There it is. That is not the Christian ethic. Me, me, me. Let no one seek his own good, but rather seek that of his neighbor. That's the Christian ethic. That's living like Jesus. Live your life in such a way that you are going to edify, build up, and do good to other Christians around you by virtue of your behavior and what you say. Verse 25. And then he gets, he's going to get real specific of the dilemmas and challenges they had regarding that 
meat dedicated to idols. And he's going to help them. He's given practical advice in their context. Verse 25. So, strong Christians, eat anything that is sold in the meat. Actually, this is for everybody. Weak and strong Christians. When it comes to the meat question that is sacrificed to idols, let me answer that for everybody. Verse 25. Uh, eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. So strong Christians, weak Christians, when you go to the butcher and you say, give me a pound of hamburger, don't ask the dude, uh, by the way, is this kosher or was this dedicated to Artemis and mess everything up? Man, it is good, fresh meat. It's on sale. Buy it. Eat it. Don't ask questions. Don't ask. Don't tell. That's what he's saying. If you don't know about it, boom, you're good. Why? Why is Paul saying that's legit? Well, because it's just meat. It came from a cow. Where'd that cow come from? God made that cow. And one of the reasons God made that cow was that we would eat it and enjoy it. So don't mess things up of what God designed or intended. So that's why he says you can eat anything in the meat market if uh, you don't ask questions and all you know, this is just meat. And his reason is a biblical reason from the Old Testament, verse 26, for the Lord, uh, for the earth is the Lord's and everything it contains, every cow on every hill that's going to be a cheeseburger. Mm-mm-mm. Verse 27. So he answers that. And then he goes on. He's got two more specific questions he wants to address that they were struggling with. But if one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go... Now, this is to their house. Okay, Remember, he just said, don't go to pagan temples and their religious services and partake in their religious services and their meals. Don't do that. You're worshiping demons, either proactively or tacitly. But on the other hand, if an unbeliever or pagan invites you to their house for Thanksgiving or dinner or whatever. Verse 27. If one of the unbelievers invites you to, to their house, is what it's talking about, and you want to go, then go. Accept the invitation. And when you get there for dinner, he said, here's the freedom you have. Eat anything that is said before you. This is strong Christians and weak Christians. You go to an unbeliever's house. There's the turkey. Don't ask questions. Looks like a good turkey. Cooked to perfection. Nice and golden. Lots of butter. Very juicy. Bring it on. Don't ask questions. Don't spoil my dinner. Eat it, whether you're a strong or weak Christian. That turkey came from God. God made turkeys so that they might be eaten on Thanksgiving Day. Eat anything that is set before you. Be careful with that verse at dinner time or at the dessert table. Eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. There it is again. Don't spoil it by saying, wait, is this a kosher turkey or was this dedicated to Pluto or whatever his name is, that false god? So there it is. You have freedom to go and eat with unbelievers. You have freedom to eat what they serve you as they're being hospitable. And you, you have the freedom to enjoy it because God made all the food that you have to eat. Uh, and then verse 28, he gives another situation. But if you're at that unbelieving home, you're there for dinner and there's a crowd invited. And it just so happens that you're there and there are other Christians invited to this unbeliever's home. And it just so happens that either during the meal or at the meal or before the meal, one of these other Christians probably a weak Christian, finds out, oh, the turkey was dedicated to a false god, and they make a public announcement at the dinner table just before it's served. <laughs> unclean meat, unclean meat, dedicated to a false god, dedicated to a false god. And they announce this at the meal. They just messed everything up. Boy, now all we have is salad. What a bummer. <laughs> Verse 28. But if anyone says to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, this is meat sacrificed, do not Eat it. So you're the strong Christian. You're ready to pork out on the turkey. Somebody makes another Christian's there. They have a weak conscience. I'm not touching this. This is contaminated. And that weak Christian knows you're there. You're the strong Christian. They've made that announcement. It has been declared. It is true. As the strong Christian, you are to refrain from that meat and not eat it. Why? Get this. For the sake of the conscience of the weaker Christian. Well, what if I offend the unbeliever? doesn't matter. The priority of whose conscience you don't offend is your fellow believer in Christ, not the unbeliever. That is hugely important. You can apply that all the time in your Christian life when uh, maybe some unbelievers invite you to some pagan thing to be involved in that is world that a weak Christian believes this is worldly, this is sinful, this is a compromise, this is a social event that doesn't honor God, it undermines the Bible, and I don't want to go there. I have a guilty conscience about it. I have a... A sensitive conscience about it. I don't want to go there. I'll feel dirty if I go. And then another Christian makes them go to violate their conscience. That is wrong. Yeah, but the unbeliever, they might be offended if I don't go. Too bad. 
You need to be more concerned about the conscience of the believer, the unbeliever. Why are you not as worried about the unbeliever's conscience? Because their conscience is totally seared already. They, according to Scripture, they have a dead conscience. They have a dark... They need regeneration to enliven their conscience. It's already dead. You can't make it more dead. They don't know Christ. They've rejected Him and His truth. You need to give attention and priority to your fellow believer and protect, nurture their conscience. I see that violated all the time. Out of Christian love. Violating a fellow believer's conscience because, well, we want to reach out and show love. Well, show love in ways that aren't compromising. Do it on neutral ground. Do it in your own home. Have a play date at McDonald's, whatever. But don't violate another Christian's conscience. Paul's clear about that. He also deals with this at length in Romans, too, in kind of a parallel passage. Um, so if a fellow, I think it's if a fellow believer who has a weak conscience says to you, hey man, this meat we're about to eat, it's, it is, it's been sacrificed to idols, it is unclean. Paul says, okay, strong Christian, don't eat it for the sake of the conscience of the one who informs you. Verse 29, uh, now I mean not for your own conscience because you, you're good, but for the weaker brother, for the other man's conscience, for why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? Verse 30, if I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that which for I give thanks, well, out of deference to that fellow believer, to edify them, to build them up, to love them in Christ, to help them grow, to not be a stumbling block, to not cause them to sin. That's why. Great principle. So when I exercise my freedoms, live for others' edification. And finally, uh, 31 to 33, as I'm walking, living out my freedoms, I need to live for God's exaltation. And that's, uh, look at verse 31. So here's the conclusion. Whether then you eat or drink. Now, what are the, some of the most mundane things in the world that we can do is eating and drinking. You can't get any more mundane than that, really. This is routine. Everybody does it. There's nothing religious or spiritual about it. We do it three times a day or 30 times a day. Everybody does it universally. It's just eating and drinking. Ho-hum. You've got to do it to survive. That's what you do. What does this have to do with religion? How can you glorify God in what you're eating? Uh, this isn't even a religious or spiritual matter. That's ho-hum. That's why Paul chooses this. It doesn't matter how mundane or insignificant or unspiritual and unreligious perceived by people. As a Christian, everything needs to be viewed in the light of giving God glory. So no matter what you're doing as a Christian, you can proactively and intentionally give God the glory no matter what you're doing, regardless of how uh, boring, mundane, little, insignificant, behind the scenes it is. Because God's eyes are always on you, Christian. God's eyes are always on me, aren't they? And it is my ambition that I might please Christ in everything. That's what Paul said uh, in Romans. His ambition was always to please Christ. So verse 31, this has been one of my favorite verses since I became a Christian. Probably some of you as well. Verse 31, chapter 10, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Amen. Do it all to the glory of God. Now, in order, this is an imperative. This is a command. This is not an option. This is how you should live your Christian life. This, this verse should cross your mind every single day. As you begin the day, how am I going to glorify God in everything I do today? As a parent, as a wife, as a husband, as a colleague, as a worker, as a citizen, as a boyfriend, as a girlfriend, as a student, as a teacher. doesn't matter. Is that how you are thinking? Because that's how we're supposed to be thinking. Now, but we need to understand what it means to glorify God. You know, glory, give glory to God, glory this, glory. That's one of those Christian words we use, Christianese. We call it where unbelievers, they don't know what it means, but we use it all the time. Like, they know what it means. So glory needs to be defined. I mean, this is an important command. This is one of the most important commands in all of Scripture. Give God the glory in everything. And we can't do that if we don't know what it means to give God the glory. Uh, pretend I were to give you a pop quiz. And I were to ask you, uh, don't say the answers out loud, but answer it in your head. And if I were to answer, ask you a few questions that I think are very important about glory. So let's not pretend. Let's do that. Uh, here's a pop quiz. I want to know what you. I want you to know what you think about glory. Okay, answer it in your own mind. You can even write it down if you want to. Question number one: What does it mean to glorify God? Don't say it out loud. Just think about it. What does it mean to glorify God? I'm commanded to glorify God. What does it mean to glorify God? Hmm. That's actually kind of challenging to put in your own words, not using the word glorify. What does it mean to glorify God? Okay, here's my shot at it. Here's the answer. 
some, that I gleaned from Scripture. I'm trying to put it in ways uh, that you can understand. It, it just simply means to make God the priority, right? Make Him the priority. He's the most important in everything. Consider God most important in all things regarding all decisions you make. Uh, consider, answer these, consider these questions. What does God want in this situation? That's a great way to do it. What does God want in this situation? Not what I want. What do I want for my kids as opposed to what does God want for my children? What do I want for this church? No, it's what does God want for this church? Answer that question, then that's all about the glory of God. It's what, what does God want and also what does God think? What does God think on this issue? Or give Him all the credit. Something good happens, you give God all the credit. He gets all the praise. He did it. Everything good that happened, God did it. Everything bad that happens, I did it. Or it also means to give no praise to man or self. All praise goes to God. So those are just different ways to uh, define what it means to glorify God. Give Him, the, give him the, the praise and the credit and the priority in thinking on all things. Okay, next question. Now that we know what glorify means, how do we glorify God? How does a Christian do that? How do you fulfill this mandate? In everything you do, no matter what, whether eating or drinking, give glory to God. How do you do that, practically speaking? What does that look like? How do you implement that? That's enough, that is hard to think about. But actually, the answer, I think, is very simple. Here's my answer. It's the simplest answer distilled down. How do we glorify God? Through obedience. I don't care what else you say came up in your definition. I guarantee I could probably put that word or whatever you said under the rubric or the moniker of obedience. That's how you glorify God in every area of life. How do you glorify God in how you raise your children? You obey God the way you're supposed to as a parent. How do you glorify God in your marriage? You obey God in the principles of being a spouse. That gives him obedience, gives him glory. Trust and obey, for there's no other way. Hey, I should write a song. Obedience, that's how you glorify God. Okay, next one. Number three, we're almost done with the quiz. How do we know, okay, so if uh, giving glory to God is doing what God wants, and if giving glory to God is obeying God, then I think a prerequisite is, prerequisite is, is I've got to know what God wants and I've got to know what God thinks in order that I can do what God wants. So how do I find out what, this is the question, how do you know what God wants in order to obey it to give Him glory? That's another good uh, question to grapple with. But again, the answer is simple in Scripture. How do we know what God wants, desires, or requires? The answer the B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. Oh, I should write another song. But anyway, Scripture. Did you know that Scripture is the only way that we can figure out what God wants, requires, or desires? I would challenge you to think of finding out what God wants, desires, or requires in any other place in the world aside from the Bible. Come up and tell me about it, and I'm going to say, well, I don't know, I think that's either in the Bible or I disagree with you. Because Scripture is the revelation of God and His mind. Divine revelation. That's why knowing the Bible is so important. You can't talk about pleasing God, knowing God, glorifying God, apart from biblical principles. People do it all the time. Well, I'm going to do this to please God. Well, actually, that's a violation of what God said to do. That doesn't please God. So what does glorify God mean? Uh, find out what He wants and thinks. Give Him the praise. How do we glorify God? By obeying Him. How do we find out what we need to do to obey God? It's in Scripture. So let me ask you a personal question for me too. How are you doing in glorifying God in every area of your life today? Starting with your personal walk? Your family life? Whether you're single? Whether you're married? Your church life if you're a Christian? Are you glorifying Him? If you're a student? Are you glorifying Him in all areas? How you talk about your teachers as a citizen? How you talk about the government? How I talk about the government? Spiritual leaders? Scripture says pray for your uh, political leaders. Am I undermining them and mocking them or am I praying for them like it says in Timothy to do or Titus? Glorify God in every area 
of your life. And you've got to get your nose in the Word and be able to do that, do that in a discerning manner. Glorify God. So he goes on, whether then you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Verse 32, summary statements. He has already addressed these truths. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks. Don't, don't needlessly ostracize and offend people, whether they're believers or unbelievers, or to the church of God. Verse 33, just as I also please men in all things. You can do this. It's not impossible because I modeled it for you. And I am sinful, and I am finite, and I am fallen, but I do this as a model for you. So Paul is an example by which they can mimic, which we can also follow. Just as I also did all things to relate to men and be a witness to them and please men. How did Paul do that? Well, he was a Jew. He was a fastidious Jew of a Pharisee who would never think twice about eating any kind of meat that was unclean. But once he became a Christian, he was liberated and set free and was willing now to eat meat sacrificed to an idol if he was commiserating with a bunch of either saved Gentiles or unsaved Gentiles as they ate their meat, as long as it wasn't dedicated or being in a worshipful time to demons, but it was just meat, he could now, as a believer, have a clear conscience to meet the Gentiles where they were in a way he couldn't when he was this fastidious Jew who would have nothing to do with unclean food or unclean meat. So he accommodated himself and his liberty that he had in Christ in terms of his ministry relating to all people in legitimate ways. It's not lowering the standard. This is just relating to people where they are in legitimate ways. Context by context. Verse 33, not seeking my own profit. Always thinking about the edification of others and the glory of God in my own personal sanctification and holiness. Also the profit of many so that they may be saved. And there he's talking about unbelievers. So an unbeliever invites you to their um, false worship service of a baptism or dedication uh, graciously decline and then uh, think of an alternative where you can behave. But uh, no, I'm sorry about that because, you know, here's my... Don't be ashamed either. Here's what I believe and I can't do that with a clear conscience. But hey, maybe you would consider... Uh, maybe we can have a play date or whatever. That, that, that legitimate alternative to continue to build that relationship and that rapport with those unsaved folks with the same goal that Paul had, that they might be saved. And God will honor and bless it as a result. With that, let's go ahead and eat some meat that's not dedicated to idols, I hope, in the fellowship meal. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for this day and the, the clarity of your word. It's amazing, Lord, that um, Paul wrote this down 2,000 years ago and you've preserved it and it still has relevance for us in a very practical way. Remind us as a church body, Lord, these three things, that we would flee idolatry, run from it, remembering that it is displeasing to you. It, it dishonors you. It, it makes you angry. You're a jealous God. You're a holy God. And God, also uh, help us to not serve ourselves, but to prefer others over and above ourselves the way Jesus Christ, the, the perfect servant, did. And most of all, God, help us and remind us continually that no matter what we do, whether we eat or drink, we do it all to your glory. And we need your help to do that. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.